If you have your Bible, find Joshua chapter 3. Old Testament book of Joshua chapter 3. This, this book, the book of Joshua, just records a very pivotal moment in the history of the nation of, uh, of Israel, the Israelites, as they, as they enter the promised land in fulfillment to the promises that God, or the promise that God made as far back as Abraham, uh, and then repeated many times over to, to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses, and over and over again, repeating this promise uh, that, that God would make Abraham's name great, give him offspring, become a nation, they would receive a land of his promise, um, and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That's Genesis 12, 15, 17, again and again and again. And we've noticed, we've noted already more than once in Joshua that, that it, like every, this is an Old Testament narrative. It's just telling a historical story, a historical account of what happened in history in the lives of God's people. But this, this Old Testament narrative, like every other Old Testament narrative in the Old Testament, is, isn't, isn't meant just to be an accurate account of history. We've said this several times. It is an accurate account of history. It's not meant just to be that. But it's also meant to be, in addition to that, a prophetic proclamation about God okay, through the way it tells the history. Um, and his unfolding plan of salvation that would one day ultimately be accomplished in Christ Jesus. And hence today is going to be another example of what we've already seen repeatedly in, even in this story, that here in Joshua 3, we're going to have more than just a moralistic story about trusting God during difficulties uh, or about how God can... Over, seemingly overcome uh, seemingly insurmountable obstacles in our lives if we'll just consecrate ourselves and, and, and pour more faith in, into Him and walk in obedience, as true as some of those things are, right? Um, that's not all that this story tells us. Uh, this, this is a story, Joshua 3, about the salvation that God is providing to a helpless people. Uh, pictured in a faint way here, even as miraculous as this story is that we're about to read, pictured in a faint way because it was this story is merely foreshadowing a greater act of salvation for an even more helpless people, namely us, that would come in Christ. All right, so as we've done in previous chapters, I want us to see what's going on in this chapter, see what is going on in the historical event itself, and thoroughly appreciate what is recorded for us in Joshua 3. But I want to follow that by talking about what we can learn about Christ, what we can learn about His gospel and how it is foreshadowed here. Uh, I, and, and in particular, I want to I say a word also about, uh, as we talk about that, about how we can think about um, seeing Old Testament shadows. How do we see things in the Old Testament that point forward to Jesus, to Christ and the gospel? So when I, when I stand to teach you, I want to do two things. I do want to I do want to teach you from the scriptures, but I want to teach you in such a way that it also teaches you how to do it for yourself. So I want you, I don't ever want to teach you anything that you go, well, how did he get that? And you don't know how to do that on your own when you're sitting in your chair in your living room. I want to, I want to teach you how to study the scriptures as well as see it in the scriptures. So that's what I want to do a little bit this morning. So before we go any further, 
Joshua chapter 3. Let's, let's read it, and then I'll try to point out what I want us to see there. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's not very long. We'll dive into it. Beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail Drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Parenthetically, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan. And those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear authoritative and necessary word and we ask your your grace and your help as we uh, study it and seek to hear from you in it this morning would you please give us 
eyes to see the truth of Jesus Christ in this story. Would you give us minds to understand clearly what, we, what you have to teach us here? Would you give us uh, hearts to embrace and love that truth that we see and know? Would you give us wills to obey whatever it is that you would lead and call us to do? Give me the help that I need to teach, and please give us all ears to hear. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So clearly, we're still in this opening stage of Joshua that spans the first five chapters. I won't rehearse all of that, but you know the first five chapters of Joshua deals with their preparation to enter into the promised land. It won't be until chapter 6 that they go up against Jericho, the first city of the conquest in the promised land. Uh, so here they're still in that preparatory stage. And in chapter 1, just to rehearse a little bit, in chapter 1, remember how uh, in chapter 1, God assured them through Joshua of, of three things. He reminded them first of his promise, his promise that he made to Abraham, like I've already mentioned. His promise to give them this land. God has not forgotten about his promise. He is not slow to fulfill his promise as he reckons the fulfillment of it. Uh, he reminded them of his promise, of his presence with them in chapter 1, right? That he would be with them as they go into the land in fulfillment of his promise. And also of his providence. So his promise, his presence, his providence, that he would sovereignly um, orchestrate the events of their going into the land to bring his promise of uh of their inheritance of that land of fulfillment. They weren't just, and where did we see that in chapter 1? It never was said in chapter 1 that they were just going, to going in to inherit the land. It was always said in something, in, in a way similar to this, that they were going into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, right? Clearly emphasizing God is providentially doing this. Then in chapter 2, in preparation to enter the land, Joshua just as Moses had done before him and with him, sent spies into the land to, to, to scout it out and to see what kind of land it is and what kind of people live there. And he said, look, especially at Jericho, because again, that's going to be the first city they come to. And those spies eventually brought back to Joshua a good report, but not without difficulty. You remember chapter 2, because uh, the difficulties they encountered were they were when they were in Jericho, they were discovered as being spies. The Jericho police came knocking on Rahab's door, bring out the men, right? But they, were, uh, they would have died in that moment if not for the help of one person, namely Rahab, who was a prostitute in Jericho. Rahab not only protected those two spies, but in the process she also professed faith in the Lord. Um, and in her own unique way, not just through her profession of faith, in her own unique, unique way about who she was, and then by God's sovereign orchestration, her genealogical line leading all the way to Christ, she herself pointed forward to Christ. And that brings us to chapter 3, which we just read together. But before we take uh, a closer look at, at uh, chapter 3, here's how I want us to break it down and try to help think through it. So if you're taking notes... I want to look at this from two ways, right? So first, I want us to think about the method of their crossing. The method of their crossing. Just basically reviewing what happened. And taking note of the event uh, from the perspective of, 
uh, who, those who were there on that day. The method, how did they cross, right? The method of their crossing. Then secondly, I want us to think about the meaning of their crossing. This is where we sort of, sort of take a step back and think about this same event in Joshua 3 from the perspective of the whole story of the Bible, the whole canon, right? Knowing, you know what we believe about the Bible, this is, this is yeah, this is 66 different books written by almost 40 different men, but also sovereignly inspired by one Holy Spirit. And so 66 different books that tell one grand story centered on Christ. And so we want to take a look at this same story, uh, knowing that this is just one episode in the larger narrative that begins in Genesis and goes all the way to Revelation, uh, and that Jesus Christ is the center of that story. So we want to see how this story is connected to Christ. So pretty simple and straightforward this morning. Just two angles to the passage we're trying to see. What happened? How does it point us forward to Christ? One question covering the event as if we were on the ground during the event, and then the other question as if we were looking down on the event from the Goodyear blimp and we see the whole, we see the whole thing below us, right? Uh, we can not only see this event, but we can see how it plays out to the very end, all right, and how the part is connected to the whole. So with that said, let's take a closer look at Joshua 3 and the method of their crossing uh, the, the River Jordan. So look there with me. Really, Joshua 3 and 4, these two chapters um, are one whole narrative in this story. These two chapters, 3 and 4, uh, which we'll cover this week and next, in a lot of ways should be seen together. They both deal with their crossing of the Jordan. Um, and the author, in the way that he writes it, often intertwines these two chapters. But We'll save chapter 4 to next week, look at chapter 3 today. And one thing I want us to see very clearly as far as their method of their crossing the Jordan is that God is manifestly making good on um, his word from chapter 1. There's a reason I reminded you of what he said in chapter 1. God is manifestly making good on, the, on his word from chapter 1, uh, uh, that he reminded them of three things, or assured them of three things, his promise, his presence, his providence, over his purposes, over his people, which requires, by the way, God being sovereign over all things. And in this chapter, we see those things at the forefront as they are in action here. Two of them explicitly, um, and then one implicitly. His promise of the land uh, is not explicitly restated here in this chapter, but the, the faithfulness to that promise and the fulfillment of it is happening right before our very eyes. So it's, it's certainly in the background. Um, this, this chapter doesn't even make sense apart from the promise, right? But in particular, in this chapter, we see the Lord being faithful to, to bring about the fulfillment of His promise of this land by means of His presence with them and His providence over them. Um, you can't read this chapter and escape those two emphases. Um, how? Uh, I mean, like you can't escape the, the Lord's presence with them. Let's just take that first. How? Uh, as they cross through, how is the presence of the Lord emphasized? Well, it's emphasized in the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is mentioned nine times in this one chapter. It'll be mentioned seven more times in the next chapter. And even more time, that, that's explicitly just calling it the Ark. 
Not even counting the many times where it's, you know, it's indirectly referred to with a pronoun like it. It's mentioned over and over and over again. And uh, let's just remind ourselves about the ark. The ark, the instructions of making the ark of the covenant are in Exodus chapter 25. It was a box. It was approximately three feet nine inches long and about two feet three inches wide and high. So it wasn't terribly big, but it was overlaid inside and out with gold, uh, and it contained inside it the two stone tablets of the law. And according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4, it also contained an urn that contained uh, preserved manna as well as Aaron's staff that budded. See number 17 for that story. It's kind of wild. And that box containing those things overlaid with gold inside and out had on the lid two cherubim, Right? On, on, the, on the lid, and it was between those two cherubim. Uh, that is where the manifest presence of the Lord symbolically dwelt with the people. It had rings on the side of it. Why? Because it was to be carried with long poles that you could run through those rings and so that they could, they could carry it on those poles and never have to get close to or touch the Ark of the Covenant. The ark represented not only God's presence with them, but with that, His holiness, uh, His righteousness. I mean, that's symbolized through the law that was inside it. Representing His perfectly moral nature. Just to skip ahead in the Old Testament a little bit, you get a sense of the, not only just the presence of the Lord that goes with the ark, but His holiness, His righteousness, you get a sense of that like famously in 2 Samuel chapter 6 in the story of, of Uzzah. You know, when they were, the Philistines had, had captured the ark and bad news for them. So the Israelites go and get the ark and they're not carrying it properly. They're carrying it on a cart that's being pulled by oxen. And in 2 Samuel 6, you know that there's, there's, there's guys that are walking beside the cart, apparently, and one of the oxen stumble, and the, the cart teeters, and the, the ark nearly falls off, and poor guy named Uzzah, doing probably what I would do, reach out and try to catch it so it doesn't fall on the ground. And in that moment, he dies. The Lord struck him dead. Um... We're told, actually, in Numbers chapter 4, verse 15, that that would happen. Um, and we don't, you jot that reference down. I mean, it's not like they didn't know. And they should have been carrying it properly to begin with. Remember, R.C. Sproul said one time, Why? We think that's so... Oh, my gosh, he, his intentions were good. Why would he die? R.C. Sproul said, it, That carries with it the presumption that Uzzah was more righteous than the dirt of the ground. The dirt of the ground is simply doing what God created it to do, always being obedient, right? Not, not us who break the law continually. But in addition to His holiness and His righteousness that the ark represents, it also re represented His power and His might. Just note, for example, note, for example, how in this chapter, in Joshua chapter 3, 
The ark is twice mentioned in this chapter with these, these kinds of words. First in verse 11, Behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. And in verse 13, The ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. This is the same profession of faith that Rahab made in the last chapter. After, and when she made it, she made it after recounting all of the terrifying wonders the Lord had done at the Red Sea when they walked across on dry land. She had heard about that, about how the Lord had been with them by His power and might to, to uh, overcome in battle two mighty pagan kings, Sion and Og. And she had heard about these things and the power of the Lord represented by this ark. So right at the outset of this chapter, we're told in verse 3 that the people of Israel were being informed that the, the priests were going to carry this ark before the people, before them, in front of them. By the way, the ark going before the people is mentioned five times in this one chapter. And they're to follow the ark ahead of them, a half a mile behind it. A half a mile, verse 4. And I mentioned before, that was not only so that I mean, there were a lot of people. And if the, if the priests were going right in front of them, not everybody, the guys in the back couldn't see where they were supposed to go. So if they were a half a mile, if the ark was a half a mile ahead of them, all the people could see the direction they were go, to go. But it wasn't just so they would know where to go. Um, I think there's a... There's a a secondary reason why it was supposed to go far in front of them. He said in chapter 1 to be strong and, um, and, and courageous because he would be present with him. He said, I will not leave you nor forsake you. I, I think in this way, they were so, to go so far before him, not just so they would see where to go, but because he's with them up there, they would all be able to see, in addition to knowing which way to go, they would see, they would all see, the powerful display of His wonders ahead of them. His, his presence is with them. His promise is in the background. His presence is with them. And, 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 and His providence over them is with them. Remember, he, he said in chapter 1, Be strong and courageous, because He would be, not in His presence with them, he, he said, I will not leave you or forsake you. And He said, Don't be frightened or dismayed in chapter 1, verse 9. Don't be frightened or dismayed. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. But also His providence as He promised. They can be strong and courageous as they cross over the river and enter into the land, not just because He's with them, as He said in chapter 1, because He assures them of His providence. We see this in very two, two very prominent ways here. First, look at chapter 10, uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. Verse 10. Look at, look at just how that's worded. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know, know what? That the Lord God is among you, yeah, that's His presence. And that He will, without fail, drive out. Not that they will. He will drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites. The living God is among you, and He will, without fail, do these things. He will sovereignly, providentially, cause His purposes to succeed. But the second way we see His providence at work here is essentially in the, the huge elephant in the room that we haven't even mentioned yet. 
that the very method of their crossing this river is that the priests would walk a half a mile ahead of everybody else and they have the Ark of the Covenant with them. The presence of the Lord is with them. And what are they to do? They are to go to the edge of the, of the Jordan River and just stand there with their feet in the water. Just stand there. I mean, that's essentially what, that's essentially what Joshua tells the priests in verse 8. It's hilarious. Look at verse 8 again. As for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Just go ahead and stand still in it, okay? But let's talk about the water for just a second. Stand still in the Jordan. We're told almost as an aside in verse 15. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. Nothing to see here, just move on. Yeah, right. Ralph Davis in his commentary uh, on Joshua said, This means that the river Israel faced that springtime was no placid stream, but a raging torrent, probably a mile wide and covering a mass of tangled brush and jungle growth. Now, if you're one of those priests carrying the ark, you're probably not only wondering, just stand in that. You're probably also wondering, stand in that. But what is the method behind this odd instruction? It's another mini exodus. It's a mini exodus. As soon as their feet hit the water, just as when Moses' staff hit the waters of the Red Sea, the Lord God sovereignly, providentially caused that raging torrent of the Jordan River to dry up so that the people of Israel could cross over on dry ground. Another mini exodus. Verse 16 tells us that the water stood up like a heap, and it gives all these geographical markers to describe how much of the Jordan the Lord caused to dry up. And based on what it describes there, archaeologists tell us through finding those different places, almost 30% of the Jordan River dried up when the water stood up like that. And verse 17 emphasizes with repetition that the dry ground... Uh, appeared for them to walk across, as well as the fact that all Israel crossed over together. This was a miraculous event. It was a wonder. It was a sign. A sign pointing us to something. Pointing us to what? Pointing us, to, as we've seen, to His promise being fulfilled. His presence with them. His providence over them. Of the Lord's power, His might, His, all these things. Just as He said in chapter 1. But this, this whole episode has a meaning that far exceeds that. We see it from the vantage point of the rest of Scripture. So think with me for, for uh, the rest of our time about the meaning of their crossing. The mechanics of this chapter are not... They're amazing, but they're not that difficult to see. Right? You just go stand in that river and watch what happens. But the meaning is significant. So first, I want to... Let's do a little, how do we study our Bibles for just a second. I want to say a word about the question, how do we know? When you're reading the Old Testament, how do we know when something is pointing forward to Christ? Like, um, I mean, 
We all know that Jesus told us, told us more than once, that the Old Testament is about him. He said it twice on the, to the two men on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. All, all the things in the, in, the, in, in the law and in the prophets and in the writings, all those things concerning himself. So if we're, if we're following the aim set out for us by Jesus himself as we read the Old Testament, we should always then be on the lookout for Jesus in the Old Testament. Not that he would be physically there, as in the Gospels, as he was not yet incarnate. Then if he's not, how is he there if he's not there? How, how is he there? Hebrews said, the book of Hebrews says he's there in types and shadows. Types and shadows. He's there in things that prefigure him. He's, he's there either prefigure him or prefigure things that he would do. He's, he's there in things that resemble him or what he would do. Thing, things, that, things that provided categories in our minds, categories and conceptions so that we recognize him when he comes. right? And he comes in a greater way. And those types, and those shadows could be people in the Old Testament. Think about Adam or uh, Moses, David. People in the Old Testament can be types and shadows of Jesus who is coming. Uh, events, events in the Old Testament can be types and shadows of Jesus who is coming. We just mentioned the the premier example, the exodus, of their coming out of slavery in Egypt. Institutions can be types or shadows. The tabernacle, the temple, the sacrificial system. All, those are all things that can be types and shadows of Jesus who is coming. So Jesus is figuratively there in those types and shadows. Here's the deal, though. Some of them are easy, super easy to spot. The easiest one to spot, of course, are the ones that when you're reading the New Testament, the New Testament itself just comes out and say, hey, this. And it does that a lot of times. Sometimes the New Testament just comes out and tells you. Like, for example, when Luke, in Luke chapter 9, Luke describes what Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem on the cross as another exodus. Or uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, specifically and repeatedly telling us that the priests and the sacrifices, they never did actually do anything. They were types and shadows of a greater priest who was coming, of a greater sacrifice that was coming, who actually could accomplish these things. Types and shadows. Hebrews just tells you. But are we limited? Are we limited just to the ones that are explicitly told us in the New Testament? Like, are we, are we ever on good grounds to see in the Old Testament a type of Christ when it's not explicitly mentioned in the New Testament as being a type or a shadow of Christ? I think we are. And I can't give you all the reasons in the time we have this morning, but let me give you one way. Let me give you one way, and I'm indebted to a New Testament scholar named Greg Beal for highlighting this. I've learned a great deal from him 
of why we, I think we're on good ground. And it's on that ground, by the way, that I saw a type of Christ last week in chapter 2. And that I think we see a type of Christ again today in chapter 3. And that principle is this. Now, I know this is about to be a mouthful. So I'll say it twice. And slowly. When, when an event in the Old Testament, when an event in the Old Testament, which is not picked up later in the New Testament, when that event is clearly modeled after an earlier event in the Old Testament, which is picked up in the New Testament, we are safe in seeing that later event also as a type of Christ. All right? I'll say that again slowly. When an event in the Old Testament, which is not later picked up in the New Testament as being a type of Christ, when that Old Testament event is clearly modeled after an earlier Old Testament event, event, which was later picked up in the New Testament as being a type of Christ, then we are on good grounds and safe grounds to see the second event as well as the first event as a type of Christ. Okay, what does that look like in real life? That's the principle I followed last week in chapter 2 in referring to Rahab's scarlet cord in the window that she hung in the window, right? I, I said that, that that scarlet cord was a type of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross that was forthcoming upon her, and she, that she, through which she would receive forgiveness and, and, and salvation upon her profession of faith. Now, the New Testament never, not one time, uh, mentions Rahab's scarlet cord as being a type or a shadow of the blood of Christ coming. And yet, Christians, from the earliest days of the earliest church fathers, have seen it as such. Why? Because in the story of Joshua, in the story of Joshua and, and Rahab's scarlet cord in her window, it so clearly mirrors an earlier story of the Israelites putting the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorpost so that the death angel would pass on by their house and they would be saved. In the same way, Rahab's scarlet cord was placed in her window as the means whereby the Israelite army of God's judgment would pass by her house and she and her family would be saved. Joshua and Caleb would have been among that generation coming out of Egypt, who put the blood on their doorpost? Their parents would have. They would have been kids. No, they wouldn't have been kids. Joshua and Caleb were spies. They were old. They knew. And it, so it's highly, and not only that, but um, that story was repeated every year for 40 years at Passover, even as they wandered around in the wilderness. That's highly likely why those two Israelite spies in Joshua 2 told them among, why they could have, Done it in any way. They could have said, they could have used anything as a signal. But a scarlet cord. Why a scarlet cord? Probably she's a pagan prostitute. There's no sacrificial lamb. There's no sacrificial lamb blood to put on the door. Scarlet cord. Right? 
the, 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 blood of the, old, the blood of the Passover lamb clearly is a type of Christ to come. The New Testament says so. Um, and because Rahab's scarlet cord was so clearly modeled after the blood of the Passover lamb, so too is it a, a type of Christ. And that brings us to our text today. Of the Israelites under the leadership of Joshua crossing the Jordan River. I believe this whole event and so many aspects of it are clearly a type of Christ to come. But not once is this event in Joshua 3 held up in the New Testament as a type or a foreshadow of the salvation that Christ would later bring. Not one time. But I believe it is precisely because, and I'm sure you've, you've already noticed, it is an event clearly modeled by God, by the way, after the Israelites crossing over the Red, through the Red Sea on dry ground um, in the Exodus 40 years earlier under Moses. That event, the Red Sea event, right, the Exodus, is arguably the signal event of the Old Testament in pointing forward to the salvation that Jesus would bring in a greater and grander way. I mean, the New Testament is repeatedly and explicitly clear on that. I mean, maybe you've never thought about it this way. Even down to the very words the New Testament uses for salvation grow out of that. Words like redemption flowing out of that Exodus event. That was the defining event. It doesn't take a particularly perceptive Bible reader to see that in Joshua 3, this crossing of the Jordan River, not the Red Sea, but the Jordan River, on dry land in the same way 40 years later, uh, is God repeating the same miracle for them as He did for the generation before them at the Red Sea so that they could cross over into the Promised Land on dry land in fulfillment of His promise to them. The New Testament never picks this event up as a type of Christ and of salvation in Him. But it's so clearly modeled by God after, out of the Red Sea event in, in the Exodus, which, which is picked up in the New Testament, that this too is safely and legitimately seen as a type of Christ and the salvation that He would centuries later come to bring. One more comment before I quickly show you how I believe that this in fact, does point forward to Christ. Robert Smith, a fantastic um, professor of preaching at Beeson Divinity School and one of my favorite preachers of all time. YouTube, guys. Robert Smith, Beeson. You can't stop listening to him. He's awesome. He said... Um, if someone is accused in a negative way of, oh, you just find Jesus under every rock in the Old Testament, Robert Smith's reply is, well, at least I found him. So don't ever feel, don't ever feel that when you're looking for Jesus in the Old Testament that you have found him too much. The late 19th and early 20th, early 20th century theologian B.B. Warfield famously said, the Old Testament is like a room that is richly and thoroughly furnished but dimly lit. 
It's all there, just hard to see until the New Testament flips the light on. When you, think, when you think that you have found Jesus in the Old Testament, chances are you have. And there are several ways that we see him in Joshua 3. Let's be clear, first of all, on who, who are we in the story. Who are we? We're not Joshua. Okay? We're the people. We're the, we're the, we're the people in this story. We're the Israelites. We, we are the, we're the people in here that are completely unable to make anything happen. Completely dependent upon the Lord. Completely dependent on, on His merciful provision. But I see Jesus as three different aspects of this story all wrapped up in one person. Recall the story. The Lord brings his, his, his word to the people through Joshua. Joshua instructs the priests. The priests, who are the priests? Pe- priests are the people who represent God to the people and the people before God. He tells them, walk to the edge of the river, river and stand there in the water so that the Lord could perform His saving wonder and the people could cross over on dry land. In, dry land. in Christ Jesus, we have all of that in one person in an even greater and glor- more glorious way. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Why? Because not only is He bringing the, Lord to his pe- bringing the Word of the Lord to His people, He is the Lord bringing the Word of the Lord to the people. He's the greater Joshua. He's a greater prophet. He's the greater priest. Than, than the priests in, in this story, who represent the priests who represent the people before God. Again, because He Himself is the Lord, our great high priest, in whom we stand by faith. And He Himself is the Ark of the Covenant. And He is, and, and, and in a much more great, greater and grander way, He, he is, the, but He's not, He is in, in how? He is not entering the, the raging torrent of the Jordan River on our behalf. He is entering the eternal condemnation against our sins on our behalf. And He doesn't just push back the tide of our condemnation a long way, as it did here, but as far as the east is from the west. We're the people. We're a half mile back. So that there isn't any question that the salvation is all of the Lord. So that, you know, and, and that all we do, all we do is by repentance and faith just walk across on the dry land of His forgiveness that is earned for us by Himself and by His grace. If this passage, passage should do anything, it, it, just, it should remind us of how much we need a Savior. Um, and how much we need a mediator between God and man. And if it has shown us anything else, when, when viewed from the vantage point of the rest of the story, it is that we have that Savior. We have that mediator in Jesus Christ. If we will forsake all other hope, and come to Him in repentance and faith in His mercy and in His finished work. And that's Joshua 3. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. There's a lot to take in this morning in Joshua 3, but I trust that as we have prayed at the outset, that You would give us minds to understand the truth, in addition to eyes to see it, and heart, minds to understand, and hearts to embrace, that You've You've done that for us.
I pray that this, this passage was an encouragement to believers in this room. That um, the Bible is a special book. It is a divinely inspired book. And, a, and the crossing of the Jordan River in Joshua 3 teaches us so much about Jesus centuries later all by the sovereign orchestration of the Holy Spirit who authored it all. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by your word and in Christ this morning. I pray if there's anyone else here this morning uh, who has never put, they've never forsaken all other hope that they're aiming at in their lives and put, put their hope in Jesus Christ and look to him and him alone for their standing place before you, uh, that they would uh, do that, that you would draw them to faith today and, and, and help them to uh, reach out and talk to, to someone about that. Lord, I pray that as we go into the next service that you would continue to meet with us. Sanctify us through your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.